Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, December 6, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion of The Mandalorian Episode 5, entitled The Gunslinger. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Okay, let's let's get into it. Uh, Brian Young couldn't join us today. Uh, I just spent a couple days with him at Walt Disney World, where I got to ride the new Rise of the Resistance ride at Galaxy's Edge. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to see video of that. It is incredible. Like it, the whole experience of it is somewhat between like twenty and thirty minutes from like the the pre-show experiences to the ride itself. And the ride is like the most highly technological. It, it is mind blowing. So if you want to see some of that, uh, go to the video. I will link it in the show notes. Uh, but let's, let's talk about the Mandalorian. Let's talk about Mandalorian chapter five. And this is titled entitled the gunslinger. This is directed by Dave Filoni who directed the untitled pilot episode of the series. By the way, isn't that weird that the first episode didn't get a chapter title? I mean, sure. <laughs> no. I, or or do we think the chapter title of that's just the Mandalorian? Yeah, we, I feel like that yeah, cuz that's that's really what it is. You're just introducing that character. Yeah. Um okay, so I you know, I t- I mentioned last week I did a a poll of what people thought was the best or yeah, the best episode or the worst episode. And uh, the one that people largely on my Twitter feed, which is, you know, totally scientific and accurate in every way, uh, thought was the worst episode was the pilot episode directed by Dave Filoni. Uh, even though I thought episode four was much, much worse. Uh, and I think we, I talked to you last week. You, I think you said four was worse than the pilot uh yeah i I think probably yeah i think i said i thought this was my least favorite episode yeah yeah um so you know dave filoni coming back you know i'm a huge fan of him from star wars rebels uh you liked rebels as well right yes but i didn't stick with it very long not because i didn't like it just because i fell behind on it and just never had the time to catch up but but from what i saw i did i did enjoy it yeah filoni is incredible you know he's a master of animation he is uh you know the he really feels like the next generation of George Lucas. Like he really has that mythology built into him. And I've been a fan of his work for some time and I've been so excited for him to get into live action. I I will say that, you know, that first episode felt like the directorial debut of someone who had never directed live action, but it was pretty decent considering that that was his directorial debut. Um, This episode I think is a little bit better. uh, Although it seems like it's, getting quite a divisive response across the interweb. So, Brad, what, what did you think of this episode? Um, I thought it was okay. I, I wasn't in love with it. I kind of felt like um, it was doing a little too much of leaning into, like, giving fans, like, oh, remember Tatooine? Remember, <laughs> remember Moss Eisley Cantina? Uh, here's, here's some lines you might remember from Star Wars, too. Uh, so, it, but it was. It was and by enjoyable. the way, it was like every minute there was something. They were like, "Oh, do you remember the Dubacks? Do you remember the Tuscan Raiders? Oh, he has yeah. a higher ground." Yeah, it was <laughs> like a it was like a member berries episode of of the Mandalorian, which is so weird because Dave Filoni is totally not that kind of person, or at least like in his previous work, like it's totally the opposite of what I expect from Dave Filoni. Yeah, I don't know, but it's I I, I think. Uh, 
the story was relatively interesting, even if it didn't really offer anything new. You know, we've we've seen the 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 premise of a bounty hunter joining forces with another, only to be betrayed, and uh, and then the another another bounty coming in and creating problems and all that kind of thing. So there wasn't anything new here, but you know, the, the fact that it is Star Wars still made it you know appealing and. I think maybe this might be the episode where we get the the most dialogue from the Mandalorian. Oh, hmm. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, because he talks a lot in this episode. Yeah. Uh, I would agree there's probably too much fan service, or maybe just the bad kind of fan service. Like, I don't think fan service is necessarily bad, but, like, some of this is bad. Um, I would say, and I'm wondering, I think we're going to probably disagree here, because I know we've had disagreements on this topic in the past, Brad, but I think some of the the acting in this episode was subpar, and I don't... Dave Filoni is constantly casting some comedic actors in his his work. Like, you know, in the first episode, I had a bunch of... Uh, a couple comedy actors, and I feel like it's just out of the tone of Star uh, Wars. I don't know. I mean, there are comedic performances in Star Wars, for sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think Amy Sedaris is bad in this episode at, as all as the, you know, the... Um, uh, I guess the, the port port guide or oh, yeah. you know that kind of thing, um, or the port supervisor, whatever you want to call it. I, I think that she's good. You know, she's not being goofy necessarily. Uh, if anything, I was actually more disappointed and frustrated by the performance by Jake Cannavale, who is Bobby Cannavale's son. Yeah, uh, he just he felt very wooden and inexperienced. Like, uh, well, he's obviously supposed he's a... to be inexperienced, so. Well, yeah, but it's it's one thing to be inexperienced as a bounty hunter. It's another thing to be inexperienced yeah. as an actor in a big <laughs> show like this. Um, like he felt like he was reading his lines for the first time while they were shooting. Um, so yeah, and I I liked the he, idea. He, of his Brad, kid. he was. That's the, how they keep this whole thing secret. Is they only hand the the script pages to the actor right before they're going to read them. That's how episode five is going to Tatooine, and we we had no idea about that. That's because you know that's secrecy. And honestly, this part was was more frustrating to me than the other fan service because the character itself, um, itself of this rookie bounty hunter, felt like something that came out of fan fiction. Like like some some fan thought up, oh man, it would be so cool if I was a bounty hunter and I teamed up with the Mandalorian and, and then I betray him and then and then like and then I get to become a legend. You know, we can talk a little bit more about that uh, later on while we go through the episode. I will say, you know, last week's episode was uh, inspired heavily by Seven Samurai. This week's episode is inspired a bit by uh, The Searchers. And Brian Young, who writes a weekly recap and review on SlashFilm.com, talks a bit about that in his piece. So I'll link that in the show notes so you can read that there. Um, But, yeah. Okay, let's jump into it. Let's, Let's discuss... Uh, this episode, or actually, before we discuss this episode, I, I I'll also agree with you that this episode, like, not much happens, and you know, let, let's we'll recap at the end of this episode, like, what we learned, where, you know, what what progressed. But okay, so this episode begins. The action is hot. The Razor Crest is being shot at. Um, there, I guess we're to assume that the guy in, chasing the Mandalorian is another bounty hunter that is after Baby Yoda. Do you think? That was my impression. Yeah. Um, he says, I could bring you in warm or I could bring you in cold. And Mandalorian responds, that's my line. So has the Mandalorian become so infamous that his like lines are being quoted elsewhere around the galaxy? 
I mean, it, it would seem like his reputation precedes him, and the, the guy's just trying to be cool by taking him in in that way. Yeah. Um, so he stops short and kills the attacker. Uh, I, you know, I guess we're not going to find anything out about this new bounty hunter because he's dead. Uh, if Brian was here, I'd ask him what kind of ship he was flying. I couldn't recognize it, but uh, I'm, I'm sure you you have no idea what ship this was. No, it seemed like it had like the the shape, uh, the basic shape of an X-wing with its uh, S foils closed, um, or maybe even like a, a Z95 headhunter. Yeah, uh, the character I apparently is named Riot Mar. And he's played by Rio Hackford. But, again, we'll never see him again. Actually, you, you, you know what? That is not true. There'll probably be a comic book or a novel somewhere that will give the backstory of that guy. So, But we'll probably never see him again in this this uh, series. So uh, then we get the chapter name here. Chapter 5 is called The Gunslinger. And that brings us to the question that we ask every week. Who is The Gunslinger? Is it The Mandalorian? Is it... Toro, is it Ming, or is it the guy that we're going to see at the very end of this episode? Or is it all of them? I I would say that it's probably all except the guy at the end, since we don't really see if that guy at the end is a gunslinger. Um, so he yeah, does I, walk I would up say... with like those like boots that jingle. What are those called? I don't know. Like Christmas boots. Yeah, Christmas boots. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's what they're called. Uh, do not write in now. We don't need to know. Um, okay, so here's the big shocker of the episode. Uh, we hear that Mosa Isley Tower are saying he's cleared the land, and we're like, what? Uh, so, you know, Mosa Isley is the home of Anakin Skywalker, Job of the Hut, Watto, Sobovla, uh, the Sarlacc Pit, uh, Owen, and. Uh, Hiding place of Luke Skywalker, Obi Wan Kenobi. It's it, it is the most legendary planet in all of the Star Wars mythology, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly <laughs> where where Anakin and Luke came from. So that's where this whole thing started. So the question is, why Tatooine? Why does this episode bring him to Tatooine? I feel like. Do you think is there enough story reason for him to be here, or do you think it's like? You know, Dave Filoni being like, if I'm going to direct an episode of live action Star Wars, I want to, like, you know, film something on the set of the cantina. <laughs> because I feel like I if mean, I was going to direct Star Wars, I would I would be that. I'd be like, you know, let's maybe if he, maybe if he thinks he can get like help there. I mean, because it is a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Yeah. So if he's looking for, a, uh, you know, a place to find help or even hide out, you know, it's always interesting to me, though, that like a place like Moss Eisley is where some people go to hide. But that's also where, like, the worst people are who you would think would cause the most trouble for you. So I, I've never really understood <laughs> why it's it's considered to be this haven for people like that. Yeah, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, as I said, I don't hate fan service when it's done right. And I think the problem here is that we randomly go end up at some planet that is, you know, let, you know, the most iconic planet in Star Wars history. And we're seeing all the creatures and all the things and the, you know, the locations and it feels so coincidental and not enough unexpected. It's it's not like – it's like you said. Like if he was going to Mos Eisley because he needed to – you know, that that was a hive of scum and villainy and he needed to like, you know, you know, get that mission that like he's assigned to – or, you know, he needs to get some money for a mission. Like that would make sense. But like he just randomly lands there. It, it does, I mean I don't necessarily know that it, – it, I mean if it's – random as opposed to like it being nearby and he knows yeah. that he can get help there 
don't know. I just feel something was a little off there. But okay, uh, l- l- let's move on from there. He lands at a pad which looks like the same pad that the Millennium Falcon was uh, there, but the it's thirty five this time instead of ninety four. Uh, the you know the open air style that Han Solo parked the Millennium Falcon in A New Hope. Um, I feel in you know this is you know the first of many uh, nods to fan service that we're going to get in this episode the next of which are some pit droids from the prequels that come out and uh the Mandalorian like yells that he doesn't want you know the droids working on his ship uh we get it he doesn't like droids (laughs) i'm kind of i'm kind of surprised that we didn't get the Mandalorian having to tell someone that he doesn't take off his mask in this episode (laughs) right (laughs) um okay uh the Eccentric mechanic who is named Peli Moto is played by Amy Sedaris. Where, where would we know her from? Uh, so she was on a Comedy Central series a while back called Strangers with Candy. Um, she's she's a, a pretty well known uh, com- comedian, um, extremely funny, and just def- you know one of those people who is constantly popping up in small character roles. Uh, you, you'll also probably see her around. Uh, this time of year because she plays the secretary of uh, James Kahn's book publishing company in Elf. Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, like I mentioned before, Filoni likes to cast these comedic actors in Star Wars parts like Horatio uh, Horatio Sands. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Yeah, Horatio Sands and Brian Posehn Posehn. uh, was in that first episode. Yeah, uh, her character and performance seems to me... You know, I kind of like and I don't like it. I'll, I'll say this. Like, the, the tone of it seems a little too comedic to me, but her look feels like something I would see, like, in a 70s or 80s movie or TV show. Like, yeah. it almost, I mean, she looks like she looks like Ripley in Aliens. Yeah, it almost looks like something I would see in, like, the Ewok movies. And I, I'm not yeah. sure if that's an insult or a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it, it does feel – the character does feel like a a video game character in, in a way. Um <laughs> But yeah, but I, I it wasn't something that I disliked though. Yeah, uh, she tells him his ship's a mess, and he offers her five hundred imperial credits to fix the ship as a down payment, uh, while he goes to look for, you know, some more money. Uh, she she calls him a womp rat because you know we need more references, and he sets out to find some more money. And where is he gonna find some more money in an under the table gig in Mos Eisley, of course? The most Eisley Cantina. But before that, we see the Mandalorian walking through the main center of Mos Eisley, which is really cool. It's, it's cool to see this place, this famous place in Star Wars canon. Uh, the last time we saw it on screen in the live action films was, you know, seven years prior. Um, and it looks like it hasn't changed that much on the outside. Although. We do see that, like, he walks past, like, these Stormtrooper helmets that are impaled, um, which is a shot they've shown in the trailer, and it's a particularly cool piece of imagery, and Filoni's really good at that kind of thing. Uh, what do you think, what do you think the shot is supposed to be telling us? It's just, just like, a tiny bit of world building? Yeah, it's just, it's the continued idea that the, the Empire doesn't have a stronghold on these kinds of places as they used to. When Stormtroopers were seen walking around Tatooine, Back in Star Wars A New Hope, you know, they were enforcers. They were like, you know, police. Yeah. Uh, and obviously they really don't have any, you know, strength there anymore. Yeah. 
who knows? One of those helmets could be like one of those uh, stormtroopers that was looking for the droids outside the cantina last time in A, a New Hope. But that, that, that also... Uh, what were you going to say? I was going to say, did you feel like the shot when he walked into Mos Eisley, which, which clearly echoes the shot of them, uh, or into the cantina, rather, of, that, of, the, of Luke and them walking towards the cantina... I yeah. felt like it you very could tell similar. that. Oh, yeah, I think it was, and I, I feel like you could tell that maybe that was one of those shots where they used that stagecraft technology for. Because I sincerely doubt they rebuilt that entire set. Oh, I I don't think they built any of this, but um, yeah, I don't know. I again, I want to see I want to see a behind the scenes of this once this whole you know season hits there. Uh, I, I wish they would do, do some kind of demonstration and invite press to like walk into a room where they've done it and. And show how it works. Yeah. I mean, season two is shooting now. I wish we could go to set, but they're being so secretive uh, about yeah. this that I doubt that's going to happen. Okay. So what happens now? The the mechanic almost shoots Baby Yoda. Uh, the, the music in this episode feels like another... I, I will say I, I, I like the music from this composer, especially in, in this series. But each episode feels like completely its own thing. Like the music in this episode almost sounds like it's from like an eighties movie. Uh, yeah, there were there was a couple times where I felt like the music didn't entirely fit with the the style of the show. Like um, this episode, it felt like he veered a lot more into fanfare style stuff instead of the more tribal sounds we, we've been hearing, and I'm sure that's intentional. Um, but it did feel a little bit off, even though I still like the music. It just didn't seem like it fit with the show as well as it has before. Yeah. Okay, so we said Moss Eisley Cantina, or the Moss Eisley Spaceport looks pretty much the same. Okay, so the Moss Eisley Cantina, this is, a, you know, an iconic place from Star Wars history. This is where, we, where Han Solo met Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi cut off an arm, and, you know, the most iconic of all, Greedo yelled McClunky. So uh, things have changed here. There's no droid scanner outside. There's now a droid bartender uh, you know, the droids were not allowed there before. There's no band playing. It seems like it's quite empty. I'm not sure if that's because it's like, you know, in the morning or something. It's not like hopping place. Like, Brad, what do you think has happened here? Uh, yeah, I, it's a good question, actually. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, the bar is definitely less lively. Um, so I don't know. Maybe people feel like they don't have to hide as much at Moss Eisley anymore because the Empire uh, has fallen. Yeah. So maybe maybe people are just much more out and about and not really worried about uh, trying to stay hidden from the Empire. See, this, this is, like, if you're going to return to the Mos Eisley Cantina and you're going to, like, do fan service, this is the stuff I wish they explored more is, like, you know, tell us something about, you know, Tatooine. Tell us, like, you know, how has it changed in the fall of that, not, not only the fall of the Empire, but also the fall of Jabba the Hutt, who was kind of like in control of that region, right? Like, how has that affected the spaceport? And like, I feel like we get none of that. I'm sure that that's going to be coming once we get introduced to Giancarlo Esposito's character, who we know is um, an officer from the Empire who is walking around with his own uh, clan of death troopers. So I feel like that when whenever he shows up, that's going to be an episode where we learn more about exactly what people who used to be part of the Empire are doing and what their their state is in the galaxy. For sure. Okay, so he's looking for some work under the table, and some guy named Toro 
Calican, and this is played by Jake, uh, the guy you mentioned before. He's the son of actor Bobby. Uh, Bobby Cannavale. Cannavale, yeah. Uh, he has a puck to give him. He, he's looking to bring in Fennec Sand? Shand? I don't know how to pronounce that. But basically, it's the character played by Ming-Na Wen. And uh, what are your thoughts on her as an actor? Uh, she She's kind of like completed with this role. She's kind of completed the Disney trifecta. She, you know, voiced a Disney princess in Mulan. Uh, she is in, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, kind of, in <laughs> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And now she's in Star Wars. Like, what else is there for her to complete in the, like, I guess, a Pixar movie? Yeah. But um, sure. <laughs> what, what, do you, what are your thoughts on her as, as an actress? Uh, I think she was good in in this episode. She didn't have a lot to do. She's definitely just a quick, uh, small guest star character. Um, I, I've never been a huge fan of her as an actress. I feel like she can be a bit melodramatic a tv actress not not i I hate saying that because that sounds you know like a generalization but especially since tv has changed so much but (laughs) i I, I, I would would say that television yeah i was gonna say i I would say it feels a bit networky which i know is still a generalization because but but like you know i feel like the big dramatic stuff that's like on you know cable and premium cable usually typically is a step above like the networky kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. Uh, okay. So data shows that she's headed beyond the dune sea. Another reference, uh, Mandalorian says that she's a top mercenary and wants nothing of it. Uh, Toro begs Mandalorian, uh, it's his first job and he needs to succeed to get into the guild and basically offers up the entire amount of money. Uh, and Mando agrees. I, I, I know you mentioned this earlier that this is like this dynamic of a, you know, rookie and a seasoned bounty hunter teaming up together is something that we've seen before. But I feel like I think this dynamic in this show could have been explored further, but it seems very kind of like on the nose in the way they explore it here. Um, OK, so Mando returns to the ship and is scared uh, that Baby Yoda is missing. He wakes Baby, Baby Yoda up, who is being looked after by uh, the uh, mechanic. And um, Toro meets him outside with a couple speeder bikes. Uh, Mando kind of gives them a look. What do you expect? This isn't Corellia. Uh, they speed off, and she looks uh, down at Baby Yoda. Uh, so the, these are like bikes we've seen before. This is another reference. Uh, it almost looks like the one that like Anakin rides in Attack of the Clones. Um, the music here sounds very 80s movie. Uh, out in the middle of the sand dunes, they spot some Tuscan Raiders, you know, another, another reference on some Banthas. Another reference, uh, the, the Raiders sneak up on Toro, and uh, Mando uses some sign language to talk to them. Is this the first time that we've seen a communication with Tuscan Raiders? Uh, as far as I know, unless there's something in the animated side of Star Wars that I am forgetting. Yeah, I think it is. And, uh, you know, George Lucas, I think, kind of based the Tusken Raiders off of, like, Native Americans. Uh, and this kind of seems like an evolution of that, which I guess nowadays is probably politically incorrect. But uh, I- I'm wondering, you know, 
is this a known version of sign language or is this like, you know, another, you know, a Star Wars version of, uh, you know, but also I'm wondering, you know, Mandalorian seems to know how to communicate with them. The Tusken Raiders are natives of Tatooine. We, we have never seen them off that planet. Like that they are only, they only live on the, in, in the desert of Tatooine. So how does Min- Mendo know how to communicate with them? I mean, bounty hunters are usually pretty seasoned in a variety of cultures and dealing with a lot of different people. So <laughs> I imagine over the years that he has learned to communicate with plenty of different species. Yeah. Um, but it, it could very well be, you know, something that is tied to his childhood, something that he learned growing up too. Yeah. Uh, it just makes me wonder if he has a past in Tatooine, um, or if that's going to even be explored. I, I know the show has shown uh, Jawas, the first off-world Jawas. Before the show, there was never a Jawa that was not on Tatooine. So so maybe we will find out that Tusken Raiders are, you know, more prevalent across the galaxy. So, uh, okay. Mando offers up Toro's new binoculars uh, in exchange for passage across the land and they speed off to another isolated part of the sand dunes and they find a dewback with uh, someone who has been downed. He's on the ground. Uh, you know, dewback, another reference. Uh, Mando gets close to investigate. He turns the person over and finds it's another bounty hunter with a beeping fob. Do you think this bounty hunter was after Baby Yoda or was, she, was he after uh, Ming's character? That's a good question. It could it could be either or. I, I feel like maybe more than likely it was probably for Baby Yoda because uh, Toro had a puck for um yeah for for Fennec. So that I, I feel like that's probably indicative that there was only one person after that job. Yeah, and that's a good point. Like it's kind of established in that first episode that usually it's only one person's given a puck for a bounty. Yeah, and it was very unusual that a lot of people got pucks for Baby Yoda. Um, so, okay. Uh, and this guy's wearing like a jacket that almost looks like a resistance like jacket, which makes me wonder if, I don't know how he's connected. Is he connected to the rebel Alliance? I don't know. I guess we'll never find out. Uh, but Mandalorian quickly realizes that this is like a setup of some sort. And I'm, with all the references in this episode, I was, I was kind of surprised that he didn't say this. Is, it's a trap. Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, why not? Um, so a sniper bullet from MK rifle hit Mando in the Beskar and Mando decides to wait until dark to make a move since she has the high grounds. Another reference. Uh, we see Ming for the first time. She's under a mask. Is this like any kind of mask we've seen before in Star Wars canon? Um, it does kind of resemble the masks that some of the Sith Inquisitors where uh but i can't imagine that this character has ties to the sith that doesn't really seem like it if anything it's just another kind of bounty hunter gear that we've seen there, there's been a lot of different kinds of bounty hunters with various kinds of armor and stuff like that so that that's really what this just seems like yeah i'll say that it looks cool and uh and, and now that it's dark um toro tries to wake the mandalorian up and but he's out and toro pulls a gun on him a gunslinger and uh, Mendo's like, are you done? It's a funny, funny moment. Uh, Mendo's plan is to ride towards her and use flash charges to blind her. Uh, the charges interfere with her night vision helmet. And she has to take that off. Uh, she hits Mendo, uh, 
hits Mando's speeder and he goes flying. Uh, she has his her sights on him, but Toro comes up from behind. Not so fast, Fennec. Uh, hand-to-hand combat fight. This feels very TV, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Mando breaks up the fight and uh, she surrenders. Uh, she's cuffed and uh, Mando goes in search of... Or t- and he goes in search of the blaster. Uh, she hasn't seen Mando, a Mandalorian in a long time. Uh, she mentioned something about an event happening on a planet Navarro. And at first we don't know what she's talking about, but it seems very clear that she's talking about the event with all the Mandalorians on that planet with grief Karga that we saw in what episode three. So we yeah. finally get a name to that planet. That's Navarro, which I don't think has appeared ever in star Wars canon. So it's a new, new planet. Um, Mando wants to go find the dewback they saw, and uh, Toro says that he'll watch her, which seems like a bad idea. Um, he tells her that he tells him that she's no good to us dead, so keep her alive. Uh, she offers him twice the amount of money for her bounty, which is the same thing that happened in the pilot episode. It almost feels like John Favreau, who's writing these, like just reuses a lot of the same kind of like ideas. Um, I mean, they are bounty hunters. There's, yeah. you know. These things happen all the time. Yeah. Uh, He's not interested because he wants entrance into the guild. And she tells him that Mando's armor alone is worth much more than her bounty. And also, if he brought the guild uh, the traitor, his name would be legendary. Because, uh, you know, word of him and the baby have reached, you know, around the galaxy, apparently. Uh, How can we be sure that he's the one... And she says that the word is not that he, he the word is that he has a child with him. So uh, my question to you is, like, how would people know this? Like, how has word gotten around the galaxy of like this, this small little bounty mission? I mean, you got to figure if that many bounty hunters have a fob and they're trying to track this thing. Bounty hunters talk among each other. And yeah. I'm sure that information about them is being passed around all over the galaxy. Uh, she asks him to free her from the cuffs. Instead, he shoots her, leaves uh, on a speeder with the grand plans to bring Mando into the guild. Uh, this is kind of a surprise, right? Like, I feel like when they were promoting the show, they were promoting that Taika Waititi was going to have a big role and that she was going to have a big role and that uh, this show was going to have some diversity to it. And it feels like a lot of the, like, you know... It, Brian Young writes on the site that um, it's kind of like the old Western shows where you'd have a person in just for one episode and they'd come in and like die like a big name, you know, or bigger name celebrity uh, like actor. Uh, but I do you think it's a little bit disingenuous that we've been kind of promoted that like all these like this diverse cast and they're kind of like just come in and or out like, you know, minutes later. No, because, I mean, even, the rest of the cast that is still alive is still very much diverse. I mean, Pedro Pascal is a, a Chilean actor. You know, Carl Weathers is still alive as, as Grief Karga. So there's there's a lot of, you know, other cast members still that are, are living. So And, and you know, if the show is drawing inspiration from Western, that's kind of the idea, you know, is having this rotating, you know, thing with different actors popping up as guest stars. And some of them die, some of them appear and disappear, maybe yeah. pop up later. Uh, we've talked about before how we probably haven't seen the last of IG-11, so. I hope so. 
Uh, so Mando returns on Juvac, finds her dead. He returns to town, finds the speeder outside the mechanics. Toro has her at gunpoint and is holding Baby Yoda. Uh, if they killed Baby Yoda at that point, I would be like, out. Um, but uh, Toro basically, you know, monologues, to use the term from The Incredibles. And uh, Mando uses this opportunity to get the upper hand and take Toro out. Uh, Pelly tells... Mando to take Toro out to the to uh, Beggar's Canyon, which is another reference. And uh, Baby Yoda is missing, and but is found hiding behind something, and she consoles him. I I do think that this relationship, like on paper, seems like cuter than it does in this episode. Like it seems like she's like you know taking care of this baby, but she's so woefully unaware of how much power this baby has and how, you know, how much caring that the baby doesn't need. Sure. But that's also, that is also kind of what makes it amusing. And plus we do get a moment too, where she calls out the Mandalorian being like, you don't know what you're doing. Like, this is not how you're (laughs) supposed to take care of a kid like this. (laughs) For sure. Uh, Mando hands her a bunch of money. Where did he get this money? I, I, I guess it would stand to reason that maybe he got it from the bounty for for Fennec's character somehow. Um, but we, oh, because he probably handed Fennec's character in. No, but Fennec's still there because we I mean, see that in the end. Oh, you know, oh yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, then, or yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, it's very unclear. Uh, the Razor Crest takes off uh, someone wearing a cape and some jingling spurs, I think you'd call them, on his boots. Almost like a cowboy comes up to Ming's character, cut to black. Uh, so the question here is, is she dead? Like, I think she's dead, right? Yeah. It, I feel like it would be odd for her to survive that. <laughs> uh, then what does this character want with her? There's a chance that maybe this person was also after her and now will be going after the person who killed her. Who, yeah, who killed her because he's mad that he doesn't get to take them in uh, themselves. I'm actually wondering if this character is going to be uh, Giancarlo Esposito's character because we do see uh, that character wearing a cape in the trailer. Uh, and he d- and he does have armor and stuff on, so I I wouldn't be surprised if this is where we start heading in, uh, in that direction. That that was definitely my first thought, and then my uh, like fourth or fifth thought is, could it be Boba Fett, or could it be a guy who has Fett's armor? You know, they, uh, someone got it in aftermath the book. I don't think either of that's going to happen, or you know, at least not in this season. Um, okay, so we're at the end of this episode. Uh, what I feel like one of my complaints about this episode and this like the last couple episodes is so little actually really happens like almost nothing we I guess we have a new enemy in the form of of, of, of uh, Fennec right a a new ally in the form of Pelly we have uh, this new mysterious gunslinger but it, it it almost seems like each of these episodes is just like a pit stop like you know an episodic like just adventure. And I, I I kind of want the main thrust of the storyline to be, you know, hitting more, more of a speed. Like, you know, it should be, we should be punching it into, you know, a a faster speed at this point. Uh, Yeah. And I think, 
I feel like now that we ha- um, have been teased the arrival of uh, Moff Gideon, Giancarlo Esposito's character, that that will be take us into this last leg of episodes, and I think that will be the overarching story that helps uh, finish out this season. Yeah. Is, is there any Baby Yoda stuff in this episode that is going to be meme-worthy? I feel like that was also like a thing that like dropped. Like, I don't feel like there was anything that was like super cute like and that had been a thing for the last few episodes that like every appearance of baby yoda is like just like adorable yeah he didn't really do anything particularly funny or remarkable in this one where you could turn it into a meme uh you know the closest thing is probably just seeing him just walk down the the ship you know the ship's uh ramp yeah uh anything we missed brad anything you want to say about this episode um, I, I don't think so. I got I got to say uh, one of the things I think that annoyed me as far as just the general fan service is that kind of bold for them to put uh, Toro in the same the same seat that Han Solo was sitting in the cantina, like almost like they're trying to draw a comparison between them. And it's like, hmm, nope, not today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely not today. Uh, Jeff Spiegel on the site has an article. The Mandalorian uses one of cinema's oldest techniques to bring characters to life. I'll link that in the show notes along with Brian's uh, article. I talked to him uh, briefly about this episode, and he seemed to like this was his least favorite episode of the season so far. Uh, and he has a review on the site. Uh, it says the Mandalorian returns to a familiar planet in the Gunslinger, in the Gunslinger, an episode that may prove controversial among fans. So you can check out both of those articles on SlashFilm.com. Uh, Brad, where can we find more of your work online? Always on SlashFilm.com. Also on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And my own podcast, Go Flix Yourself, available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. You can find me always on SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Soretta. You can find that video to my trip to the new ride, Rise of the Resistance. I'll link that in the show notes. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday.